me, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 4, we continue our Jesus is Greater series, and he's talked about how Jesus is greater than the angels. He's talked about how Jesus is greater than the law and Moses, and, um, and so today he's going to draw out the implication of that. Since Jesus is greater, uh, what then does that mean for us if they rejected uh, the message of the angels and the message of Moses? And things didn't work out so well for them. What do we think is going to happen for us if we reject Jesus, who's actually greater than the angels and Moses? So if you would, join me in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obey. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. And somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, I thank you today for your love and for your kindness. I pray, Lord, that as we devote ourselves to your word and to understanding it, Father, that you would speak to our hearts, you would renew our minds, that your Holy Spirit would form us into the image of Christ. We're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead, that he's king of kings and he's Lord of lords. I pray he would have our allegiance, our devotion today. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if someone ever told you a story and as they were telling you this story about someone else, about a different situation, you realize they're really telling you this story for your own benefit because they think it's relevant for you. Uh, recently went to uh, the dentist and uh, suddenly she starts telling me all of this information about uh, the benefits of flossing either before or after uh, you brush your teeth and just goes on and on, you know, talk really getting, it's kind of like me if I got into a theological conversation and this commentator said this over here and this commentator, she's like, well, you know, these dentists say this over here and these dentists say that over there and she just keeps going and going and going and finally that was just kind of the end of the story and it occurred to me, 
She's telling me this so that uh, I will know I need to floss more, all right? Uh, That's what this story is all about. She was telling me a story about something else for my own personal benefit. We do this a lot. That's what Hebrews is doing right now, telling us the story of Israel. And as we reflect on their story, as we reflect on what they did and how that turned out for them, we're supposed to pay attention because the same is true in our situation as well. The opening verse gives the basis for this chapter. Uh, The author is really concerned that they are not going to enter God's rest. Another uh, translation, New Testament uh, for everyone translation says, so we are, for verse 1, we are naturally afraid that some of you might seem to have missed out on God's promise of entering his rest, the promise which is still open before us. And so there's a couple of things we take away from this. On the one hand, uh, we have received the good news. The good news has been proclaimed to us, okay? And at the same time, we still have opportunity to respond to it and enter into God's rest. But he's writing this because he's concerned, as he says in verse 1, that you may be found to have fallen short of it. And so he's warning them. This is really a warning to them uh, because he's concerned they won't in, will not enter God's rest. You know, the thing about Israel... They had all of these spiritual advantages to all the other nations around them. Think about the other nations around them. They've got God's general revelation that, uh, that whatever begins to exist has a cause and uh, the universe began to... They, they can reason their way to understand that there is a God in heaven. They can pay attention to morality, to their conscience, to know that there's uh, right and wrong, there's good and evil. Uh, but they did not have, for example, the revelatory presence of God. They did not have God's word. Israel did. Israel had all of that, and they still did not enter God's rest. And one of the main reasons I was drawn to preach through Hebrews is because I feel like, living in the Bible Belt, we have a lot in common with Israel. We have all of these advantages. We have all of these spiritual advantages and opportunities. Um, We know who Jesus is. We know the gospel We know that the Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that he himself really answers what philosophers call the big questions in life. He's the way. He's the way we ought to live, how we ought to treat others. He's the truth. He's the kind of person we ought to aspire to be, the true model of what it means to be human and the one we should conform to. He is the life. He's the one who gives our lives meaning and purpose and abundance. We have Jesus. We have the gospel. And by the way, we've got Bibles and Bible studies and churches on every corner. We have all of these opportunities to respond. Places, you know, we go uh, some places around the world where they've never heard this gospel that we take so easily for granted. They've never heard it, and they hear it for the first time. And what do we see? Just You can just see the power of the gospel as people hear it for the first time. There's a God in heaven who loves them, who sent his son to die for them, that their life has meaning and purpose, that what they do today makes a difference. Their labor is not in vain, that they have an opportunity to come into God's family and have eternity. That is an amazing message. We hear it all the time. We've got such an advantage. Verse 2. We have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them let that rest on you for just a minute of no value to them why was it of no value to them that's what we want to talk about today they did not receive that message with faith 
Today we're going to talk about four defining marks of those who enter God's rest, four defining marks of those who enter God's rest. You know, back in the day, I used to have a K. Arthur inductive study Bible, okay? Uh, some of you have heard of uh, K. Arthur, and, and some of you may have a study Bible. And, and I loved her method of just, uh, as you study the Bible, marking things and uh, looking for themes, and particularly words that are repeated over and over and over. And when words are repeated over and over and over, you know, okay, that's a pretty big theme in this section. Okay, I want you to think about this word rest, this idea of rest. This section starts in chapter 3, verse 7. I wonder how many times the word rest is brought up from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through the end of our passage today. Follow along with me. Uh, I'm just going to say these. I'm going to pepper these out, and you can go study this on your own. The word rest is mentioned in chapter 3, verse 11, chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, Chapter 4, verses 1, 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Do you pick up on a theme here? This is a major concern that the author has that they won't enter God's rest. He says at the very end, chapter 4, verse 11, Let us therefore make every effort, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So that word effort really does uh, make a difference here because it's not like we're just going to hear the word and just sit back and let it rest on us and magically enter into God's rest. Make every effort. There are things that you do. Um, It's amazing to me as I studied this how many commentators didn't take time in light of the importance of rest to actually explain what rest means in this passage. Um, what does rest mean? Now, for some of us, we're like, I hope this is literal and we can just take a nap, okay? That's what I want to enter into right now is a nap. And folks, you've just got about 45, 50 minutes. I'm just kidding. Uh, maybe so, I don't know. Uh, but uh, you, you've got time. But uh, this is not literal. In, in the Old Testament, uh, of course, he's talking about Israel And in particular, I read this passage last week from Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, which I believe helps us understand the definition of the word rest. He says, since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you, but you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. So this idea of entering into God's rest, this idea of entering into a place of safety, a place of deliverance, a place of peace, and it was very literal in the Old Testament. It's very literal in the Old Testament because they are in danger with real threats around them, and they are supposed to enter into God's rest by following God's word and being faithful to him. But now it's being used as a metaphor for us enter into a spiritual state of protection, of safety, of deliverance, of salvation, and that is available for all of us when? Today. I don't want you to think of God's rest as something that, oh yeah, one day I'm going to die and go to heaven and then I will enter into God's rest. We use that phrase, rest in peace, okay? I don't want you to think that's what he's talking about. He's talking about right now, today, You have the opportunity to enter into a certain kind of life, an abundant life in the power of the Holy Spirit where you receive deliverance and salvation, where you receive God's peace, where you receive 
the safety and protection that you need in this life. So with all that being said, let's look at the characteristics or the defining marks of those who enter God's rest. Number one, those who enter God's rest hear the word. Those who enter God's rest hear the word. It's easily read over in verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2, for we also have had the good news proclaimed to us. Okay, so this news is being proclaimed to us. Uh, what news is that? It's the gospel. In fact, if you, this is another one of those examples in the Bible where it's the noun for the word gospel, euangelion, but it's transformed into a verb, which means uh, euangelizo, which means to gospelize, to evangelize. Okay, it's the same word, but it's translated in English translations as to proclaim to us just as they did, but the message, or literally the logos, the word they heard was of no value to them. So we start in a place that was really of no value to them, but could have been, had the potential to be of value. It is the starting place, and that is hearing the word, hearing the logos, which is equated to the good news or the gospel of God. In God's grace, Jesus comes to us as the Word made flesh. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is, Jesus is the good news because in Christ alone do we find rest and salvation. What I'm telling you today is how to have a good life, how to live an abundant life. That's not found anywhere else outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever, and we have this opportunity today, have you ever tried to buy something online? You click on, maybe it's a book or something. You click on the book, and as you click on the book, uh, you move to the next page, and then a timer pops up. This timer pops up, and now you've got like 60 seconds to buy this other thing that's half off. But after 60 seconds, it's no longer going to be half off, and you have to pay the regular price. And so suddenly you're stressed out because you're like, man, I just wanted to buy this book, and now here's this other book. And you're stressed out because guess what? You now have Urgency. You now have a window of time to make this decision. A lot of times uh, throughout uh, the course of world history, people have used uh, various tricks to, uh, to confuse us, to make us think that there's an urgency, almost like propaganda. That's not what it's doing here in Hebrews. In Hebrews, he's drawing out the fact that we have a window of time to decide whether we will give Christ our all and give Christ our allegiance. Our first responsibility is to hear the word, to really actually listen to the word and give consideration to the gospel as long as it's called today. They did not do that. A few weeks ago in our uh, series, uh, What's It Going to Take? We went through Proverbs and we said that in Proverbs, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the mark of someone who's wise is that they actually listen. The mark of someone who's wise is that they think carefully uh, what they are listening to and they apply it to their lives. Throughout this text, they talk about the hardening of their hearts. Chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 3, verses 8, 13, and 15. They're hardening their hearts. They're not listening. They're not paying careful attention to what is being said to them. They're not applying God's will to their life. One of the things I'm encouraged about this congregation is that so many are hungry for the word. Um, some of you have been going to church longer than I have been alive, okay? 
And I just got some names here. No, I don't have any names that I'm going <laughs> to. Uh, but uh, some of you, you've been going to church longer than I've been alive, and it's just fascinating to me how you will show up, and you've got your, your Bible is all worn, and you're writing in it, you've got papers in, you're showing up, and you're hungry to learn more. You're hungry to learn more. You'll go to Bible studies throughout the week. You are carefully considering what the Bible says. You are hearers of the word. We're going to talk about we can't be hearers only, but that's the first step. You've got to be hearers of the word. Uh, Turn over with me briefly to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 fairly well-known passage in Romans. Verse 14, it says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent, as is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. The same concept as what he's talking about in Hebrews. They had the good news. They had the message of God. They did not respond to it. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message And the message is heard through the word about Christ. So a final implication is not just that we have the opportunity to take the word and take it seriously and listen to it, think carefully through it and its implications for our lives, but also we are responsible to take that word to others as well so that they hear the message. How will they believe? How will they accept the message if they never hear it? We are not responsible for their choice. We can't force them to choose one way or the other. We are responsible to put them in a situation where they hear the word of God and the gospel of Christ. And so what do we do with that? Missions is important. We go to the nations with the good news of Jesus Christ and share that message with the nations. I want to give you a statistic today. Did you know that 72%, think about this, 72% of today's evangelicals came to Christ before the age of 18 Half, about 43 million, came to faith between the ages of 5 and 12. And listen to this. Gen Z, which is uh, the generation born from 1990 to 2010, is the least religious generation in American history, and they're becoming more and more so as each year passes. Now, what I take away from that is we have a window of opportunity to invest in the lives of children and youth. We have a window of opportunity to take our message and make sure they understand it and disciple them in the word of Christ. That is, if we want to make a difference in the world, if we want to change the world, that's where we have to start. That's where we have to start. Those are the ones that we need to continually be engaging so that this church, generations down the road, continues to have a vibrant ministry. So number one, those who enter God's rest, hear the word. Number two, those who enter God's rest believe the word. They believe the word. Notice again in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, it says, for we also have the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. So we're in the same kind of situation as they are. But the word they heard, the message they heard was of no value to them. That's the warning to us. That's the threat to us is that it becomes of no value to us. Why would it not be of any value to us? Because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. 
Why was it of no value to them? They did not share the faith. They were not united in the faith with those who obeyed. And herein lies the warning. Hearing is not enough. Hearing could be of absolutely no value to you or to me. And I think there's a self-deceiving mechanism in the Bible Belt. The fact that we have so many Bibles, the fact that we... um, the fact that we have so many opportunities to go to Bible study, to church, the fact that we have all of these spiritual advantages, sometimes because we're just bathed in the word over and over and over again, we feel religious, we feel righteous, we feel godly because we keep hearing the good news proclaimed to us. But the good news is of no value just to those who hear. It's of value to those who respond in faith, those who believe in faith. Those who truly believe have reworked their priorities, their loyalties in light of the gospel. Those who believe buy in. They have bought in to the gospel message. There's a renovation of the heart. There's a renewal of the mind. You know, if you think about uh, a coach and a team, imagine having the greatest coach in the world who has the greatest system in the world for his team, and maybe he has the greatest, most elite athletes in the world. All three of those things will not amount to victory if the players don't buy in. We have the greatest teacher in the world, the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the power of his Holy Spirit. We have the greatest gospel in the world. We belong to the greatest family in the world. None of that is to our value if we don't respond in faith and buy in to what God is doing. None of that is of any value to us. We have to have complete buy-in. So the question is, do you believe? Do you believe? Does the gospel have your buy-in? Do you see the world through the lens of the gospel? Are you living out your life on mission for God in light of the mission that he gave you? Number three, defining mark number three, those who will enter God's rest, obey the word. Those who enter God's rest, obey the word. So notice that last part. They did not share in the faith of who? Those who obeyed. Those who did not enter God's rest did not share in the faith of those who obeyed. They did not enter God's rest because of disobedience. Notice chapter 4, verse 6. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in, why? Why did they not go in? Because of disobedience. Because of their disobedience. This is why they did not enter God's rest. Now, I believe uh, one of my concerns is that... uh, we're able to articulate the gospel. Turn over with me real quick, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 11. Um, One of my big concerns for the church uh, in America and really anywhere else is that we know a lot of things that are true in the Bible. We have understanding of many parts of the Bible. But when we're asked to articulate the gospel, we articulate some truth other than the gospel. We say something other than the story of Christ. And I'm also concerned that we don't understand what faith is, what saving, genuine faith looks like. Um, Hebrews chapter 11 explains to us what genuine saving faith looks like. It says in chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that 
What is seen was not made out of what was visible. Skip down to verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as, Isaac, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. So here is a defining of faith, of true, genuine, saving faith. When Abraham believed by faith, what did he do? He obeyed. By faith, he obeyed. Faith looked a lot like following God. Faith looked a lot like building his home. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger. He lived in tents. He gives examples of um, of Abraham demonstrating his faith on a regular basis. He not only was someone who heard the promise of God and heard the word of God, he wasn't just someone who believed in that message, he's someone who obeyed the word. And my concern is that we think true, genuine, saving faith is we say a simple prayer and then we move on with our life and there's no change of course, there's no change of direction in our life and that is not the biblical definition of faith. That's not the biblical definition of saving faith. Abraham is held up as an example. He believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was in good standing with God. He was in right standing with God because he believed in that faith produced a faithfulness in his life. Even the gospel, if we were to turn over and we don't have to, uh, we won't do this now, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 8 through 10 talks about how the gospel is meant to be obeyed. The gospel is meant to be obeyed. But I do want to ask us to turn to one other place, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And I want you to consider discipleship. Consider what discipleship, what genuine discipleship looks like. In Matthew 28, verse 17, it says, When they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So the foundation for discipleship is the fact that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's given us this command to go and make disciples. And what does it look like to make disciples? He gives two characteristics. One, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We could talk about all the symbolism that goes into baptism. But one obvious message that is proclaimed in baptism is, I belong to Christ. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. I belong to him. It is a declaration of allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is partly all about. But notice something else he says. Teaching them. Does he just say teaching them the commandments? He says teaching them to obey the commands of Christ. So part of the way that you demonstrate your faith is by teaching others to obey the way of Christ, the commands of Jesus Christ. Finally, number four, those who enter God's rest persevere in the word. Those who enter God's rest persevere in the word. This is easily looked over, but I want you to, uh, I want to turn your attention as we wrap up to chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. It says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, 
It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. What is the Word of God? Is it uh, simply the 66 books bound together in your Bible? We would say that this is the Word of God. Is that what he's talking about in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12? Well, the fact is, hadn't written all of the books of the Bible at this point. So when you see that phrase, Word of God, it could refer to... Uh, several different things. One, it could refer to the Holy Scriptures. It could refer to God's spoken word. It could refer to, um, it could refer to the gospel. And it could refer to Jesus being the word of God incarnate. It could refer to any of those things. I think probably here in light of what we read in uh, chapter 4, verse 2, it refers to the gospel of God, that God has given us this gospel in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. And that has power to change our lives. It's living and active. It divides soul and spirit, okay, the uh, intentions and thoughts of the heart. It pierces, okay. What's the point of all that? The Bible is powerful. The Word of God is powerful. The gospel changes lives. But beyond this, I don't want us to miss verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Literally, that metaphor reads something like this, to expose the neck by lifting the chin. It means that we are all vulnerable before God, that whatever we convince other people about ourselves and who we are, God knows who you are. God knows who you are. You cannot fool God. He sees you. That's a very comforting thing that we talked about several weeks ago is that God sees you. But it's also a very sobering fact. You're not going to fool God. He sees you. Whatever your reputation is on this earth, whatever you've led other people to believe about you in this life, God sees your heart. And one day you will stand before him to give an account of your life. And guess what? He's going to know if you took his word seriously by hearing it. He's going to know if you heard his word and actually cared about it and wanted to listen to it. He's going to know that. He's going to be able to see in your heart whether you're someone who actually believes that message. Not just a fan of it, not just intellectually agreeing to it, not just even liking the message, but you actually believe it. He's going to see that. He's going to know if believing that message, that faith produced some kind of faithfulness, some kind of reorientation in the way that you live your life or not. If you're just going through life as a nice person, if you just made a decision one day that you're given the opportunity to go to hell or heaven and you had at least enough sense to say, I'd rather go to heaven, right? I mean, how many of us in this room want to go to heaven? As Kenny Chesney says, everybody wants to go to heaven, you just don't want to go now, right? So we all can make that decision that we want to go to heaven, but if you receive the gospel, if you believe the gospel, it reorients your life to follow after Christ. That's what true, genuine, saving faith is. Faith without works is dead. And then you persevere to the end. You persevere to that last breath. And then the question today is, and we close with this, are you ready for that last breath? It's a sobering thing and I think a very helpful thing to contemplate, to think about the day that you pass from this life onto the next. And Right now, you've got today. You don't know that you've got tomorrow. Hopefully, 
We all do, but we don't know that. We've got today, we've got this beautiful opportunity to make a decision for Christ. And if you were to breathe your last today, are you ready for that? Are you prepared for that? Some of us, if Jesus were to return right now, we would absolutely be celebrating and others, oh, I need more time. I need more time. And here's the beautiful thing. You've got today. You've got right now. You have an opportunity to hear, to believe, to obey, and to persevere starting today. And again, we enter God's rest when? Today. It's not just when you go on to heaven. That's part of it. I'm looking forward to that. Amen? I'm, I'm looking forward to breathing the air of heaven and singing the song of the Lamb in heaven. Man, I'm looking forward to that. That's exciting to think about. That's exciting to contemplate. But the beautiful thing is, he's like, hey, you can enter God's rest now place of spiritual protection and peace and salvation today. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I just want you to take an opportunity to think and reflect for a moment. To reflect. Have you entered God's rest? Are you someone who you've heard the word and taken it seriously? You've believed in it. That faith has produced faithfulness in your life and you're persevering in that. Is that, are those defining marks true of you? Gracious Father, I pray that right now we would just take a moment to reflect. Lord, I pray that we would devote ourselves to thinking about these things, taking them seriously, and Father, that we would make whatever decision we need to make today. Step of faith today. Father, teach us through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. The altar's open. If you today want to make a decision to trust in Christ or follow through with believers' baptism, or maybe today you want to join our church, or uh, you just need to come kneel at the altar and say, God, search my heart. Show if there will be any wicked way in me and lead me in your way everlasting. Whatever it is, pray that right now you'll respond as we sing. Who can sign?